Please remain standing and turn to your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 24. Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. When her owners saw and realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. As they had severely flogged with them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them in the inner prison and secured their feet on the stocks. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, hello, True North. How are we doing this morning? Sweet, sweet. I hope you are all well, um, and I hope that as we approach the near or approach the end of this Lenten season, I hope that you've all had valuable time to reflect on the challenges as well as the changes that the past few weeks might have brought about in your lives. In this season of Lent, I hope that you've all found opportunities to remember and to receive God's invitation to return to him, especially in the midst of our busy and distracted lives. And in the course of reflecting and remembering, I hope that we've all seen and seized opportunities to repent, to, to welcome God's light into the darkest corner of our hearts and our lives that we would probably prefer to hide from and to turn away from sin, whether it's a bad habit or an addiction or an unhealthy worldview. Lent is a time of remembrance and repentance, a time in which we can shed the distractions that life layers on top of us um, in order to look towards Jesus and to return to him. As, as we said earlier, today is Palm Sunday, which marks the start of Holy Week, when we focus on Jesus' journey to the cross, beginning with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, uh, before we then look upon his sacrifice on the cross on Good Friday, and then celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday. As we near the end of the Lenten season, we are also nearing the end of our Sacred Bodies series. Uh, it's all been one big journey together, and I hope that it's been, I hope it's been a blessing to you. Um, and so before we continue, let us take a few moments of silence to reflect. So get, go ahead and close your eyes, and just breathe slowly and deeply. Settle your mind and your body. What have the past several weeks been like for you as you've observed Lent? What have you learned about yourself and about your relationship with Jesus and even your relationship with others? Maybe, maybe you rediscovered intimacy with Jesus and felt renewed, like, like a deep friendship or relationship was rekindled or maybe you discovered that your relationship with him is inactive or non-existent. We're, we're all at different places. It's, it's okay to be honest. If you're new to church or to this community and this is the first time ever hearing the word Lent, that's okay. Welcome. Take this time to reflect on why God might have brought you here. And next, reflect and think about any internal changes, any internal shifts that might have taken place over the last few weeks. 
Maybe your heart is more aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit in and around you. Or maybe you're more aware of the darkness inside you and your need for light and healing. Maybe you've felt moved to repentance. And if that's you, you are in the right place today. And then just breathe and settle into the presence and love of God here today. Holy Spirit, we thank you for this moment. And we just ask that you would freshen our minds, wake us up, and that you would prepare our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, some of you know that Amanda and I have a little baby at home, uh, a firecracker of a dog named Doodle. Uh, he's literally a tornado of black fur. And if you've met him, you know that he is crazy. Uh, we adopted Doodle around June of last year. He's a, he's a COVID dog. And if I'm honest, it was almost an impulse move, almost. Like, we definitely thought about it for a while, and we even prayed about it. Uh, we talked about how we wanted to raise our future family in a home with a dog. We knew we wanted to rescue a dog who needed a home, and we knew we couldn't handle a puppy, but the decision to adopt this particular dog was made pretty quickly, almost too quickly. We were, we were checking the adoption site week after week, looking for the perfect dog that would suit our lifestyle. Uh, young, but not a puppy. Active, but not too crazy. Uh, we first found a dog named Willa. She's beautiful. Uh, she seemed like the perfect fit, but when we called about her, they, they interviewed us uh, and found that it wasn't quite a good fit because Willa needed a lot more attention than we could give. Um, and it was kind of a bummer. But then two days later, they called us back. We got the call back. Uh, they called us back saying they had a dog just coming from Texas uh, who they thought would be a perfect fit. He was just two years old, active and playful. Uh, so we were excited. I mean, we were excited that they specifically recommended this dog to us. Uh, we felt like it was meant to be as the answer to our prayers. Uh, so we set an appointment to meet this doodle and we went on a Sunday afternoon uh, we got there and they set us up in like this fenced off meeting area and we waited to meet the little guy. Uh, the door opens and then out comes this black fur ball uh, pulling in every direction. The, the staff of the shelter looked like they were trying to restrain this force of nature. They're like this, getting out the door. Uh, and then they released him into the pen. And immediately he was, he was running the perimeter, darting back and forth, jumping on top of and over things. And we weren't sure what to think. We were like, he's definitely playful. Um, and then after a while of playing with him, we naively thought, why not? This will be an adventure. We'll take him. To which the person helping us replied, really? Okay. <laughs> with a little too much eagerness in her voice. So we brought him home, we followed all the steps to get him acclimated to his new habitat, and it was a lot. He was literally bouncing off the walls and running laps around the house, the zoomies. And then we discovered he was a destroyer. He quickly chewed through and tore literally all the toys that we bought him. And he completely obliterated two of his beds. And by the end of the week, we lamented to each side of the saying, He's awfully hyper for a two-year-old. Did we make a mistake? But we can't just return him. And Amanda would sob in despair. And then it gets, it gets better. As I just said, we thought he was two. The paperwork said he was two. The shelter told us he was two. We take him to the vet. They check his teeth. And the vet tells us, uh, he's definitely not two. He's one year old. Congratulations, you have a puppy. So we go home, more sobs of despair, and we were like, we did not sign up for this. Man, that was a rough, that was a rough period. Um, but as many of you know, we still have Doodle. Uh, he's still crazy. Uh, we launched into heavy training, and he's, he's actually a lot better now, now, believe it or not. 
for the most part. He's come a long way. Uh, but throughout the process, and even now, we ask ourselves, when's he ever going to mellow out? Will he ever change? He's almost two. Can he change? Is change possible? Throughout the course of this teaching series, as we've confronted our bodies, as we've confronted our unhealthy views of our bodies, the unhealthy ways in which we've been taught and conditioned to view our bodies, the unhealthy ways in which we then treat our bodies, or the ways we idolize our bodies, as we've confronted our addictions, as we've confronted the need for change, we come face to face with this question. Is change possible? Can I change? Is there any real hope for transformation? Is there hope for healing and redemption? Sin is real and its effects are real. We all experience sin done to us. We all do sin to others. We sin against the people around us and the people in our lives. And then we also feel the unavoidable byproducts of sin. Sickness, disease, inescapable health conditions, and death, along with tragic circumstances that we did nothing to bring about. We do not choose the families we are born into. We do not choose the circumstances, good or bad, that we're brought into. We have no control over it. And it feels unfair a lot of the times. We ask, why couldn't I be born with his or her natural talent? Why couldn't I have, have a more privileged upbringing with better opportunities? Why was I born with this health condition? Why was I made this way? And to all these things we ask, is this redeemable? Can Jesus redeem this? Can Jesus redeem my body? Can he really bring healing? Can he redeem me and my brokenness? And this is our first point. Can I change? Can I change? Because most of the time, the things that we suffer from, the sins that we struggle with, they feel like they're here to stay. Or if we've been sinned against, whether it was being cheated or lied to or slandered or made fun of, these things leave marks and scars. If we've been abused verbally, physically, emotionally, mentally, or sexually, there will be scars. And over time, there's just so much scar tissue that builds up, it feels like these scars are our identity. We looked at this when we confronted generational sin, and trauma research affirms it. Listen to what Dr. Bessel van der Kolk writes in his book, The Body Keeps the Score. He writes, As children, we start off at the center of our own universe, where we interpret everything that happens from an egocentric vantage point. If our parents or grandparents keep telling us we're the cutest thing in the world, we don't question their judgment. We must be exactly that. We will carry that sense with us that we are basically adorable. As a result, if we later hook up with somebody who treats us badly, we will be outraged. But if we are abused or ignored in childhood or grow up in a family where sexuality is treated with disgust, our inner map, our way of seeing ourselves in the world, contains a different message. Our sense of ourself is marked by contempt and humiliation. And we are more likely to fail to protest if we are mistreated. We'll fail to fight back if we're mistreated. He goes on to point that child abuse is our nation's largest public health problem. And he writes, eradicating child abuse in America would reduce the overall rate of depression by more than half. Alcoholism by two-thirds, suicide, IV drug use, and domestic violence by three-quarters. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 16. We'll look at three case studies today throughout the New Testament, and this is case study number one. Luke records in Acts, 
As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. The text says slave girl. It's pretty clear, but let's be crystal clear here. This is a child slave. This is a victim of child trafficking and slavery, things that continue to go on throughout the world today and in this country. According to research published in 2016, at any given time, about 40.3 million people are in modern slavery. And of those, one in four are children. Women and girls are disproportionately affected. So the sad reality is that humanity has not progressed all that far. But Paul and Silas are in Philippi, which is in Macedonia at this point. Uh, They're sharing the gospel, and they encounter this slave girl, who's not only a victim of child trafficking, but is also possessed by an evil spirit, and her owners are profiting off her fortune-telling abilities. And so just think of her inner map. Think of how she saw herself and how she saw the world. Slavery being owned by someone else, being used and abused for profit. This was her norm. What's your norm? This was life as she knew it. Chances are she was probably abducted or sold at a very early age. Now, I know there's no such thing as a perfect family, but most of us in this room have at least some pleasant memories of childhood. I have the luxury of looking back on memories of time spent with both my parents. I have have the luxury of thinking back and, and being able to remember time with friends, of being loved. A far cry from not knowing my parents, not knowing safety and care, and of being used and abused as a commodity. But this was her life. A life of being sinned against of being stripped of identity, dignity, and a sense of self, not to mention love and care that children so desperately need. The text goes on. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, this sounds strange, but basically this girl is stalking Paul and Silas and harassing them. She's like, she's trolling them. The evil spirit in her was essentially doing the same thing that the demon in Matthew chapter 8 did when it cries out to Jesus, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So she's harassing them. She's trolling them. And the text says, This she kept doing for many days, which points to the notion that this was a constant for her. Being dominated by this evil spirit was her daily reality. Slavery, both physical and spiritual, was her daily reality. I wake up a lot of the time and I simply dread just having to go to work sometimes or running out of coffee beans. I don't have to dread being controlled by an evil spirit and then wondering what my owners will make me do next. And so think of what that does to a child. Luke then writes, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Just like that. Now, this story is far from over, and we'll return to that later. But first, truth number one. Jesus heals sin done to us. Jesus heals sin done to us, and this is a great hope. To those who have been abused or abandoned in any way, to those who struggle with a warped sense of self and worldview because because of what's been said or done to you, to those who struggle with self-hate and feelings of worthlessness as a result, no matter how deep those roots run, Jesus brings healing. And it definitely does not mean that it's a short journey. But Jesus brings redemption. In this instant, the spirit was cast out of the girl, which meant that she was no longer under the dominion of this evil spirit. 
And the fact that she could, she no longer had these fortune-telling powers meant that her owners didn't want her anymore. And so she was free from them, too. Her road to healing, the long-term effects of trauma, were not over. And we'll return to that. But this is a bright turning point. Now, case study number two. This is in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Uh, and in the interest of time, I'm going to paraphrase, but do read it on your own time because it's a beautiful story. But anyway, Jesus is hanging out with a Pharisee named Simon. And they're, they're hanging out at his house and they're eating and they're, I hope, I think, having a good time. Uh, when in comes a woman. The text says, a woman of the city who was a sinner, which basically meant she was a sex worker. Anyway, she had heard that Jesus was there. She came to seek him. And then she falls down at his feet, starts weeping, kisses his feet, and then proceeds to anoint them with expensive ointment. Very dramatic, yes, but that's kind of the point. Simon witnesses the scene and he's like, whoa, what is she doing? Why is she even here? And does Jesus know that she's a sinner? And then Jesus responds with a parable that essentially boils down to this message. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Essentially, forgiveness is sweetest for this woman because she knows, she understands the depth and pervasiveness of her sin. For those who do not see their own sin, forgiveness doesn't mean much to them. This is why self-awareness is such a crucial part of spiritual formation. It's why self-awareness is so central to being transformed. I don't know about you, but this gives me great hope. It gives me great hope because it means that no matter the size, depth, or pervasiveness of my own sin, no matter how badly I mess up, nothing can stand in the way of Jesus' love, grace, and forgiveness. It means that we cannot out-sin God's grace. Now, does this mean that we should sin more so that we can taste the sweetness of forgiveness all the more? Absolutely not. Paul writes in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? But it does mean that our sin is never so bad that Jesus stops chasing after us. There is no such thing as too bad or too far gone in Jesus' eyes. Truth number two. Jesus heals sin done by us. All too often, we either feel the sentiment, I hear it around me a lot, that we're too bad, we're too sinful, we're too rough around the edges to be in church. Or that we have to get our act together before we come to God. And this is just simply not true. It's not true. And let me just say that if this is you, you're actually in the perfect place right now. If this is you, you're actually exactly who Jesus is looking for. Jesus came to seek and save sinners like you and me. Jesus doesn't expect anyone to fully clean themselves up before coming to him. If we could do that, we would not need him. But the fact is, we can't. We cannot clean up ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. And we desperately need Jesus. I'll say it again. You cannot out-sin God's grace. Now, case study number three. Turn now to Luke chapter eight. I am going to read this one. Luke chapter 8, verses 43 to 48. So Jesus is walking in the middle of a large crowd to see the daughter of a man named Jairus, who's actually a leader at the synagogue. Uh, His daughter is dying, and Jairus asks Jesus to go to her, and so he does. But on the way, people are crowding in on him and the disciples, and this is where we pick it up. Chapter 8, verse 43. And there was a woman 
who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though he had spent and, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him, as Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and you are and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This woman had been suffering from chronic hemorrhaging for not a week, not a month, not six months, for 12 years. She had spent literally all that she had on doctors trying to get treatment, but none of it worked. This was life as she knew it. No hope for any change or healing for that matter. And the terrible thing is that she didn't even do anything to get this. And the horrible reality of living in a world infected and ravaged by sin is that, and, and the effects of sin is that sin does not discriminate. We cannot control the family or the circumstances we're born into. We can try to live a healthy lifestyle and still succumb to cancer. We can come from a nurturing, loving family and yet still suffer from mental illnesses. Sin does not discriminate. Satan does not discriminate. He wants to destroy all of us. And he will do whatever it takes to prevent any of us from knowing life, healing, and security in Jesus. He'll do anything. For some of us, that's temptation. For others of us, that's just being busy. Sometimes it's as easy as that. At the same time, as we endure the unavoidable effects of sin, these, these terrible byproducts, if you haven't already, there will come a time in which we wonder, why does God allow this to happen? Why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he answer my prayers for healing and redemption? I mean, I, I wondered this when I lost my mom at an early age. Why didn't God do something? My mom was healthy. She was enjoying life. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she suffered an aneurysm. No warning, no real causes. Just like that, I lost my mom. Why do we lose loved ones to cancer? Why do we have to suffer miscarriages and, and stillbirths? Why doesn't God save my parents' marriage? How do we, how do we reconcile these things? I won't, I won't try to explain it away because there's no easy answer to this. But moments like these tell us that sin is not just the bad things we think or do. That is a minuscule view of sin. It's far more insidious than that. Sin is an infectious condition that pollutes and destroys everything in its path. It's a condition that affects everything. It's a condition that you and I suffer from. And again, sin does not discriminate. And so if we think that we are without sin simply because we don't think or do overtly bad things, friends, we are sorely mistaken. The Apostle John writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. In other words, we're lying to ourselves. But here's what we do know. We worship a God who does not sit in the bleachers in heaven, looking down on us while the world burns, while we suffer. We worship a God who did do something about it. 
a God who did enter this world on fire to walk with us, to suffer alongside us, and to put an end to it. He sealed the end of sin and death through his sacrificial work on the cross. We know that he continues to walk with us, to rejoice with us in our moments of triumph and joy, and to mourn with us, just as he mourned with Mary and Martha when they lost their brother Lazarus. We know that he hates sin and the effects of sin infinitely more than we do. And we know that he is making all things new. That's present tense. Here in Luke, we see that when the woman caught a glimpse of Jesus, she knew that just a touch would heal her. She was so sure of Jesus' healing power. And she, she touched him and was healed. And Jesus says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. We know there will come a time when sin and suffering will finally be no more. We know that Jesus is currently bringing renewal. Many of us experience this, even in our pain. And that there is an end to death in sight. So truth number three, Jesus heals the terrible, unavoidable byproducts of sin. The end, it's a happy ending. Jesus heals, we can pray, right? Paul and Silas cast out the demon in the name of Jesus. The girl is free and the town rejoices, right? The prostitute in Luke is forgiven and Simon the Pharisee high fives Jesus and embraces her, right? Sadly, no, it's the opposite. Back to Acts 16. Let's pick it up at verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So the slave owners are angry because they just lost their main source of income. But then they incite the town by saying that Paul and Silas are polluting Roman customs and beliefs with the gospel. Just a bit of context, Philippi, the, the region they're in, was a Roman colony. And, and it was fiercely pro-Roman. It was like Roman fever all the time, which made it rather hostile to the gospel, as you might imagine. So the crowd and the leaders, they get riled up and they beat, they beat Paul and Silas and throw them into prison. Anyone here ever get busted for doing the right thing? It sucks, right? Paul and Silas free a child slave and they get beaten and thrown in prison for it. Jesus offers forgiveness to a prostitute and the religious leaders question him about it rather than celebrating the victory. It's the same when Zacchaeus, the tax collector, repents, changes his way, welcomes Jesus and the religious leaders are indignant. Like, shouldn't we be celebrating these things? Why does it seem like everyone would rather keep these people enslaved? And this points us to an unfortunate snag in our story, and really quite a major snag in our lives, and that's this. The odds are against us. The odds are against all of us. Our world sets conditions that make it incredibly hard. To break out of sinful cycles. An easy example is, can you even escape work? Our world makes it so much easier to remain enslaved. We experience this on a daily basis. And if anything, Lent highlights this, right? The odds are against us as we try to rise above the sin done to us and the trauma that results. The odds are against us as we try to turn from the sin that we ourselves do. The odds are against us as we try to kick addictions. The odds are against us when we try to hold on to the truth that God is present, he is powerful, and he is loving. When everything in our lives feels terrible. 
Friends, we all bear the marks of sin. Either sin done to us or sin done by us or by the unavoidable byproducts of sin. When we dig deep, we'll find that we all have scars. Think of the first time you watched a really scary movie. I bet those images are still in your head. The reality of being human is that we scar. Physically, mentally, emotionally, we scar. When we are abused, we are scarred. When we are taken advantage of, we are scarred. When we are abandoned or neglected, we are scarred. When we don't experience the love that we should, we are scarred. Conversely, when we sin against others, we are scarred. When we abuse others, we ourselves are scarred. We desensitize ourselves and grow numb to the pain that we inflict upon others. We become more heartless. When we isolate ourselves and ignore others and distance relationships, we become scarred. We lose our ability to relate to and empathize with others. We become people who love both God and people less and less. The more we indulge in sinful desires, the more we become accustomed to depravity. It becomes okay to us. And so we're scarring our souls. When we indulge in addictions, we are scarring our souls. We are sending messages to our brain and to our body that say self-abuse is okay. When we continue to indulge in pornography of any kind, we are sending messages to our brain that say, objectifying others and profiting off their abuse and degradation is okay. This severely scars our souls. When we experience tragedy, we are scarred. When we see a friend or a family member suffer through an illness, that's scarring. When someone we love dies, we are scarred. As the title of Dr. Vanderkolt's book states, the body keeps the score. We all bear the marks. So what are we to do? What is the path to healing and change? And here we come full circle back to our first question. Can we change? Can we really change? And this is point three, the path to change. Today is Palm Sunday. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, ultimately on his way to the cross, on his way to his own suffering and death. And just moments before the people shout, crucify him, in this instance they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. We sang that song earlier. The chorus rings out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. But do you know what you're crying out when you say that? Do you know what you're singing? The word Hosanna means, please save us. Hosanna, Hosanna, please save us. Jesus rides in and the people cry. Hosanna, please save us. Is this our cry? We cry out, can I change? Can I be healed? Can I be redeemed? All the while, Jesus journeys to the cross. We ask, how do I get on the path to healing? All the while, Jesus is on that path for us and with us. Jesus went to the cross. That is our path to change, healing, and redemption. And he walks that path for us. Jesus walks that path for us. He took our sin. And that means the sin done to us as well as the sin done by us. He took all that with him to the cross where it was ultimately defeated. Sin and death defeated Jesus wins. And now when we hide ourselves in him, his victory is our victory. So 
So where do we look to for healing? Where do we look to for redemption? When our sin seems to run so deep in the very grain of who we are, is there proof of healing and redemption? Is there proof that we can change? Friends, the answer is a resounding yes. Where do we look? We look directly at the cross. We put our faith and trust in the power of the cross, the power of Jesus' death on the cross, the fact that he has defeated sin and death by rising from the grave, and the fact that when we hide ourselves in him, we are victors with him. Because of the cross, our sin does not define who we are. Because of the cross, Jesus defines us. Because of the cross, God looks at us and sees the righteousness of his son. He looks at us and views us more highly than how we often view ourselves. Think about that. God has a much higher view of we do than we have of ourselves. So the first step to change is to believe in the power of the cross and to rely on it, to bank all that we have on it. Go to Jesus, trust in his grace and receive it. Trust that we've tried way too hard to heal and redeem ourselves. We've tried way too hard to change ourselves, but apart from Jesus, we cannot. We can maybe modify our behavior for a short while. Uh, We can maybe repress our inner demons temporarily or deny any effects of sin and trauma on our bodies. But ultimately that is delusion. And the nature of sin is that it always leaks out in some other way. Hide your life in the loving arms of Jesus instead. And rest in his victory. Believe in his healing power. Lastly, as I said earlier, the odds are against us. The conditions set around us are not conducive to freedom. They're not conducive to life with Jesus. In fact, it's the opposite. It's conducive to slavery. We experience this on so many different levels. To end, let's return to Acts and the former slave girl. The text doesn't say what happens to her after the evil spirit is cast out of her. The crowd is stirred up against Paul and Silas on the grounds that this gospel they're preaching is disrupting Roman life and disrespecting its customs, and they're beaten and imprisoned. But if you read on, we find them praying and singing hymns to God in jail. There's suddenly an earthquake, and then they're miraculously sprung free. Not only that, but the jailer and his family come to know Jesus. It's beautiful. But nothing is said about the girl. Is she just all better after she's healed? It doesn't say. But did Zacchaeus the tax collector just declare himself changed and then do nothing? Did Jesus call his disciples and then allow them to to keep on fishing, to keep on doing whatever they were doing? The story is incomplete here. But here's what we do know. This all took place, as I said, in Philippi, where the first convert, the first person to come to Jesus was was a wealthy merchant woman named Lydia. The first church in Philippi was likely a house church run out of her home. And scholars point out that a majority of the people in that church at that time during those days were members of the slave class. This makes sense since the gospel appeals to those who have been oppressed. So this would have meant that the girl who was formerly that fortune-telling slave was led into that community, as was the jailer and his family. Now, we have to understand that the church in those days was very different from what it is now. It was not a production. It was not a once-a-week service that we dutifully go go to because it's what we've always done. 
very different. The church back then, from the portrait we get in the book of Acts, was a community. It was a close-knit family devoted to following Jesus together. They didn't come for the great music or simply dynamic preaching. They came into community to do life together. So that means more than one day of the week. Not only that, we read in Acts that they cared for and met all the needs of their members. And so essentially, the girl entered into a community that helped to bring about a lifestyle change. Because that's what it takes. Paul and Silas, casting out the demon in the name of Jesus was a catalyst, but she still needed a lifestyle change. And her community would have been the place where that could happen. I've, I've said this time and time again, but as John Mark Homer states, if you want the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. If you want the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Over the past couple of weeks, we talked a lot about reforming our habits. In order to remove bad habits, in order to change, you must replace them with healthy habits. The odds are stacked against us. And I'll just say this straight up. This sermon won't change your life. Neither will next week's or the week after that. They might be catalysts, but on their own, they probably won't change your life. Chances are, if you go to New York and you hear a sermon by Tim Keller, who's a genius and a vastly far better teacher than me, chances are it won't change your life. If you show up to church every Sunday, it probably won't change your life if it stops there. Think about it. We're in a world, we're in the world six days out of the week. And then we spend maybe two hours here or, or maybe another two in a small group. Logically speaking, how on earth do you expect to change? We can't. Real change comes about when we change our habits and our lifestyle. This sounds really hard and nearly impossible, but that's why it starts with going to Jesus, the stronger one. We are partnering with him. We change little things like what we do on a daily basis, our, our daily practices, our daily habits, while he does the hard work of changing our hearts. This is how it works. And believe me, it does work. Remove your habit of, of binging Netflix Twitch or, or watching porn at night by calling a friend in the midst of your temptation and praying together. Confront the messages of insecurity and self-hate. The voices that say you're not good enough or attractive enough or that you're dirty and worthless. Replace those with messages of truth. Messages that remind you of Jesus' love and desire specifically for you. Confront your desire to hide and isolate and instead confess. Go to Jesus in prayer and confess the sin that you've committed. Confess the sin patterns that you just feel so stuck in and the sins that you suffer from. Cry out to him about the sins done to you or the unavoidable byproducts of sin. Ask for forgiveness and grace that he offers freely. Don't hide. Confront your tendency to self-isolate and throw yourself into safe community. Because you really do have to force yourself at first. Where you can be open and vulnerable. It will probably feel really unnatural at first because it's not our default. But do it. And let people who are probably struggling through same things as you walk alongside shoulder to shoulder. What we do spiritually must counteract the influence of the world. And so step one, go to Jesus. Put your trust in the power of the cross, in, the power, in his power to heal and to redeem, in his real presence with you. And then step two, take real steps to partner with him. Start where you're at. And trust in the fact that his grace is sufficient. Trust in the fact that he supplies strength and that he does the hard part. He changes us. We do not change ourselves. He ultimately changes us. We get to partner with him 
And we must partner with him. St. Augustine states simply, without God, we cannot. But without us, God will not. He will not force us. There's no love in that. There's no response in that. I mean, haven't we had enough? Haven't we suffered enough under sin? Haven't we seen our friends and our loved ones suffer enough? Haven't we gone on like this long enough? Why not choose life? Go to Jesus. Partner with him. Begin to change your habits and experience Jesus doing the hard work of changing your heart. We can change. Some of you have heard me share this story before. But back in 2020, when all of our activities were confined to Zoom, I know we miss it a lot these days, I was in a small group with our friend Hugh. Uh, he ha- we, we happened to be in the season of Lent, uh, and we were talking about habits that we wanted to change. He shared that he played a lot of video games. It was a lot of Rainbow Six. He's like this right now. <laughs> uh, and he acknowledged how toxic the environment usually is, and that he was a part of that. But that he didn't like it. He didn't like what it was doing to him. He didn't like how it was forming him, the person that he was becoming. And so in the season of Lent, he resolved to stop, in his words, roasting people. I laughed at first when, I, when he shared it, and I shouldn't have because he was serious. But anyway, we, we prayed about it every week together. He resolved to stay disciplined. There were ups and downs because that's just the nature of it. But when the Lenten season ended, May came, and then June and July, and then a life update. He shared that even though Lent was over, and if he wanted to, I I guess he could go back to roasting people on Rainbow Six or whatever. But he didn't. He changed. Some of you chuckle because this, this may seem small compared to other things, but this is a victory. This is proof of real heart change. Change is possible. Change does happen, and change does happen here. So go to Jesus. Put your trust in what he did on the cross. Receive forgiveness grace, and ultimately salvation. And then bit by bit, reorder your life around him. And friends, you will be changed. By the power of Jesus, you will be changed. Let's pray. Jesus, you are powerful. We thank you for that. We thank you that you have power over sin. You have power over our sin. And you have victory over it. And we thank you that you do redeem, that you are redeeming us. You are redeeming this world. And that you do bring healing, Lord. We ask that you would work change and real transformation in our hearts. And we ask that you would give us the discipline to follow after you, to build our lives around you, and to partner with you, Lord. Lead us to do our part as you do the hard part of completely reworking and transforming our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.